0: You're listening to the product podcast from Product School, featuring the best product leaders from Silicon Valley and beyond. If you're an aspiring product manager looking for your first PM role or an experienced PM looking to level up your skills and advance your career, visit productschool.com to learn about our certifications and how we'll get you there. This episode is brought to you by Amplitude the pioneer in digital optimization software that helps product leaders answer the question, how do our digital products drive our business? 1,400 plus customers, including Atlassian, Instacart, and Under Armour, rely on Amplitude's product analytics. Get started at Amplitude.com. Today, we're joined by Microsoft product leader, Ali Vera, to give us the 411 on how to enter the product world. If you don't have previous experience, the PM role can look like a lot. That's why we'll be diving into exactly what it takes to interview, get the job, and how to use your experience to your advantage.
1: Hi, everybody. My name is Ali Vera, and today we will talk through the A to Zs of product management. Today, we'll discuss what is a PM. We'll talk about building the right skills. We'll talk about developing your resume for maximum effectiveness. We'll go through some of the typical interview questions, which you might encounter in a PM interview. We'll discuss building a optimal elevator pitch. And lastly, we'll discuss playing to your strengths. So what is a PM? Typically, product roles will align to one or more of the following descriptions. You've got uh, project managers or technical product managers. These are folks who are generally responsible for planning, designing, and executing projects and products into reality. You've got a product manager. uh, That's someone who will typically do end-to-end product design, Requirements, road mapping, they'll work on implementation, risk analysis, and adoption. Mm-hmm. And lastly, there is a program manager. These sometimes refer to folks who are involved in process optimization or improving business performance. Uh, at Microsoft, they are typically a blend of both project and product. So what is a PM really, right? How do we get beyond the buzzwords? Well, as a PM, your job is going to be to identify the best problems to solve. To solve those problems, and then to make the business money. You're going to be interfacing with and empowering customers, developers, designers, upper management compliance teams, and your peers to ensure that you're building and delivering the best possible solution. Ultimately, you are the primary instrument to make sure that everyone gets what they want. So as a product manager, what are the sorts of skills that you need? For me, and for many of us, the name of the game is interdisciplinary. You want to be fluent in multiple areas of knowledge, because if you're managing the design of a product, you should be really well-versed in how different aspects of this product should come together. There are a few categories of PM skills, which I generally recommend to start building this sort of an interdisciplinary skill set. The first is, of course, customer empathy. You want to be thinking about What should we build? Why should we build it? Who are the users? What are their needs? Are we tackling the real problem? How are we going to measure success? Next is design. And design is a lot more than just looks. It's how you approach building the product such that it's best able to serve the needs of your customers. User design, user-centered design, excuse me, and human factors are super important areas for product managers to learn because, of course, as a PM, you are building systems which are connected to users. Other areas to focus on are mock-up design, lifecycle design. You can study UI breakdowns and you can take design courses, you know, if you're interested in building these skills. Business skills are also super important. If you are designing a product, it's important to understand the current competitive landscape, so that you might understand which opportunities lie for you to create uh, new areas or new focus areas. So, for this, I strongly recommend staying current with uh, websites like TechCrunch and Y Combinator. And to start developing this, this skill set, consider creating strength, weakness, uh, opportunity, threats, threat diagrams for companies that you might be interested in. So take a product that you already use every day and start trying to analyze it from a business perspective, right? Think about what you might want to build, where some of the opportunities might lie. Of course, technical and data skills are important as product managers. So basic software architecture, being familiar with a few programming concepts like um, algorithms, object-oriented programming, things like that. Uh, you can build these uh, these skills at uh, hackathons. And of course, understanding really basic statistical knowledge is super valuable. A lot of product work tends to be very data-driven. So if you're familiar with looking at things like trends, analyses, establishing statistical significance, that's going to be really important. And lastly, of course, relationships and communication. If you are a product manager, you're probably communicating for a huge chunk of your job. So it's really important to learn that skill set as well. Now, on this slide, there's a whole bunch of different skills and you might be thinking, okay, well, hold on a minute. Do I have to be an expert at every single skill? Uh, The answer is definitely no, right? Being interdisciplinary doesn't mean that you are an expert at everything. Uh, Each, product manager will have what I call or what my friends call a sort of superpower. So you might be an outstanding designer with a business-focused mentality, and then your your skills kind of on the back burner, your supporting skills are things like customer empathy and and your technical and data skills. So definitely don't feel pressured to learn all of these, but these are good areas to start focusing on, to start rounding out um, your skill set. So where should you build some of these skills? I described this a little bit in the last slide, but start by building something. Take a product that you already like, analyze, strategize, try and figure out what you might, uh, what opportunities exist, and and what you should build. Do a product teardown with your friends. Go on Medium again. Take a product that you like and start identifying opportunities to improve and uh, and own that. You know, in your in your day to day, study great products. Right, uh, study recent successes like uh, Clubhouse and Robinhood. Try and understand why these apps were able to succeed and what elements of the design or the product really resonate with users. Uh, Try shadowing a PM. There are hopefully some PMs at your company. Consider shadowing them. If not, maybe reach out to folks on LinkedIn. I know a lot of us, uh, I mean, folks in general do enjoy being teachers. so, So don't be afraid to reach out. Consider participating in a hackathon. Uh, Non-technical participants are still very much valued. I was actually at a hackathon recently, and though I wasn't uh, a programmer, I was still able to lend a lot of value. And ultimately, we were actually able to place as a finalist in, in that hackathon. So definitely don't be afraid to join some of those communities. Consider building uh, a personal website or a personal portfolio, but do it from the perspective of a PM. So don't necessarily just, you know, go on Squarespace and throw something up. Try thinking about who are your users? What do you want them to see? How should you be presenting that data, right? Kind of treat this as your own personal product. You could of course take uh, free design courses or bootcamp. And if you're currently uh, in college or university, I strongly recommend joining a student design team or volunteering. There is always opportunity for product design and business optimization in those areas. So one question that we commonly get is, you know, how technical should I be as a PM? I will say first and foremost, it is a myth that you need to have a computer science degree or background to be a PM. Being technical doesn't necessarily mean that you need to know how to code. Being technical can mean having the ability to break down complex technical concepts. It can mean having the desire to learn and adapt to new technologies. Being technical can honestly mean Asking the dumb questions, Uh, just like in school, if you're asking a dumb question, I promise there's at least a few other people in the room who have the same same question. And uh, being enthusiastic and curious. Uh, I'm always astonished, but if you are deeply enthusiastic about what you're working on, you can truly overcome many of the hurdles which might otherwise stop you. Um, to further this point, I actually work for someone who uh, majored in music, and there are folks on my team who have degrees in uh, psychology and business. So it is, it is definitely a myth that you need a computer science background. It's, it's really just about this ability to break down large, difficult, uh, nebulous concepts into small, understandable pieces. So with that, your bread and butter as a PM, I, I feel, consists of these three skills. I think you you, you want to be good at breaking a big problem down to smaller problems. You want to always, always ask questions. You know, if, if you're wondering about it, you're, you're not stupid, ask it. Um, even if it's silly, you would be astonished at how much progress you might make that make that way, excuse me, and, uh, and try it out. Don't let perfect stand in the way of good. Uh, this happens a lot in interviews where you will... Start whiteboarding and you'll see all the possibilities go out in, in a million different directions and you'll try to optimize, focus it, try it out uh, and, and just, just persevere. So now let's talk about resumes. So, so what is a resume really? A resume is a promise that describes what you can deliver based on what you've already done. Kind of like an essay in school, a resume should craft your story. It should talk about what you've achieved and what you stand to achieve. A resume should ideally be a blend between the skills that you possess and the impact that you've created. What, in terms of what goes into a resume, um, I think it's it's helpful to list some of the, the key blocks. and I, I make here a distinction between a resume and a CV. and I'll talk about this in just a minute, but a resume tends to be a little bit shorter, a little bit more focused, whereas your CV is you know a long list of all your achievements can go to several pages. That's you don't want that in your resume. You want your resume to be short, hyper focused, and, and really centered around the potential impact which you can deliver to another company. So we want to include your name, your title, uh, basic contact information, you, you don't need your address here. Um, so sometimes back, you know back in the day we, you'd include your address for like mailing. Uh, not, not as important now. List your skills, both technical and non-technical, They're valuable. your education, your work experience, and your volunteer experience. Uh, folks are sometimes unsure if they should include stuff that they didn't get paid for. Ab- absolutely. Uh, experience is experience and it is valuable. Throw in if you have any some of your side projects and your leadership experience, describe briefly your accomplishments and awards. And lastly, if there's space, definitely feel free to include things like your interests, maybe objectives and summary. I've seen some resumes include a a summary, some don't. I would say that this would be probably the most optional uh, of all the fields. It can help round you out as a person, but ideally you want to be structuring your resume in such a way that uh, a summary is, is not needed. It should be apparent by your skills and, and the material that is on the resume, what you are bringing to the table. So in terms of some do's and don'ts, do definitely lead each bullet with a unique, relevant action word, right? So, so think about like develop something, design something, uh, planned and executed, led, things like that. Ensure that each bullet has an associated skill or impact. And, and we're going we're gonna to deep dive on this. Do align your content and your titles to the job uh, to which you're applying. Folks are sometimes hesitant to, to edit their titles. I would say, you know, within reason, if within ethical reason, if you were, for instance, in a quality analyst type job, but you were legitimately doing a ton of project management and product management type work, you might be able to pivot that title to more accurately reflect uh, what you were doing. Uh, d- don't like outright lie, but it, it is I- acceptable to, to look at that. Uh, do be concise. I've unfortunately read resumes that are just pages and pages of text or or just walls of text and they are exhausting and sometimes they will just end up in the bin because, you know, recruiters are looking at dozens, sometimes hundreds of these uh, every day, right? So the more concise that you can be, the better. Ideally, two lines max per bullet. This actually comes from the uh, human factors design, which I was alluding to earlier. So if you go past two or three lines, it becomes a lot more difficult to focus on the content which you're reading. Try experimenting with sans serif fonts. So on this deck, this is a sans serif font. It doesn't have kind of like the little art that hangs off the letters. So Times New Roman, that is a serif font. Uh, Historically, these were great for text, but for web reading, sans serif uh, feels a little bit more modern and uh, I think it'll help make your resume look a little nicer. And, And do look at the resumes of others, right? So learn, iterate, and ask for feedback. Even to date, I'm still updating my resume every few months. And whenever I make a new uh, revision, I look back at my old one and I'm like, wow, I cannot believe I was sending that to jobs. That that looks awful. So what are some of the don'ts, right? What should you not do on your resume? So don't go over one to two pages. Typically two pages is if you have more than 10 years of experience. Don't use qualifiers or adverbs without associated impact. So uh, it's really tempting to say things like, oh, I greatly enhance the product or I massively decrease spending. As someone who's reviewing your resume, I don't really know how you quantify greatly or massively, right? So, so always throw in the metric if you have it. And, and we'll come back to this. So instead of greatly enhance the product, say that you improve revenue by 67%, right? Instead of massively decreased spending, you reduce costs by 56%. And the the advantage of, of using percents is that. When you read a percent about what you've completed in the past job as uh, an interviewer or recruiter, I am already mentally thinking like, oh, this is someone who can improve my resume, excuse me, my revenue by 67%, someone who can improve my costs by 56%. So, so definitely uh, add metrics. Do be careful with uh, industry-specific acronyms and jargon. It can be advantageous sometimes if your resume is getting, you know, screened by a robot. Then those keywords are important. But ultimately, your resume could be screened by anyone. So if it's difficult to understand what you actually built because you're using too much industry-specific jargon, consider, you know, pulling back a little bit. Don't include content that you can't speak to. So, uh, you know, similar to the title modification I, I described, you know, if you can't speak to that don't do it. If if you have um, a product that you worked on six or seven years ago, but you completely forgot what you built, don't don't include it. If Whatever is on that resume, you should be able to speak to. Lastly, don't spend too long on cover letters. Again, this is sort of um, more recent advice, but given the volume of applications that folks have to go through, uh, these cover letters typically go in red unless you're applying for a really small company. And if you are Make sure that that is not like a template cover letter, make sure it is hyper focused to the needs and values of that given company because a templated cover letter really sticks out like a sore thumb. So let's talk about metrics, right? As as a product manager, your metrics are going to be your bread and butter because your job is to drive impact. For the company, and for the customer. So the way that I approach this is I look at an action word, I look at the skills used, and then I look at a measurable outcome. Some simple examples here, right? So you could say that you made your company website in HTML. That's pretty boring, right? Per the advice on how to build skills, what if you instead wrote that you designed the specs, you created the mockups, and you coded the company website using HTML to generate 43% more site traffic, right? You've turned a really yawn bullet point into a really incredible, powerful bullet point, which can be replicated for a different company. That impact can be replicated. Another example, right? You coded a database updating tool with JavaScript. Well, what does that mean? Why did you do it? What was the impact? Instead, gather requirements, design and coded, and implement a database updating tool in JavaScript to save 2,400 hours of QA time monthly. Wow, right? That is something that I can look at and be like, okay, this person knows how to drive impact. This is important. So what if you don't have metrics, right? I I hear this a lot. There's a few options here. You can, of course, seek out your former employer or coworkers to solicit metrics, and you are allowed to estimate your impact. This is one which throws a lot of people off. So, So don't write down anything that you're not comfortable getting called out on, but you are ultimately the expert of whatever that you worked on. If you can walk me through the justification, that is just about as good as actually having the raw data. In fact, if, if you can walk me through how you come up with the metric, right, that's showing me that you have a good analytical and product mindset, which is something that I want in a candidate. Let's talk a little bit about how content should be laid out, excuse me, on your resume. Folks tend to read in this uh, this F pattern. I think this pattern is evolving, so it's, you know, it's worth reinvestigating. But consider structuring your resume content to really optimize for the way that people are reading it. So most important is in the top left, least important is in the bottom right. So when you're thinking about elements of your resume, which you may have in common with everyone else. So for instance, if you have a CS degree and everyone else applying has a CS degree, it might be less optimal to stick that at the top of your resume, because that is, it's sort of wasted space, right? It's a granted that you have it, stick it lower down. Uh, Some additional tips. You can adjust your job title to better suit the role that you deliver within reason. We described that briefly. You can also use color to highlight your impact, right? So for those metrics that we were describing earlier, if you use color, it really stands out and then and then your resume becomes super impactful, right? You're just seeing all these percents of impact. And then as someone who's reading it, I'm like, wow, this is someone who can deliver a lot of value. Uh, do lead with impactful action words, but avoid minimizing words that, uh, excuse me, avoid using words that minimize your responsibility and leadership. So so please don't say that you facilitated communication. That doesn't mean anything. Do adjust your resume based on the job for which you're applying. So if you're applying for a data-focused PM job, and all your your resume content is about like um, like JavaScript or HTML, right? Pivot it. Change those bullets to be more effective. And like I said, if you don't have direct work experience, those projects absolutely count. So another FAQ, should you include old experience or not, right? We've all been there. If you are mid-career, right? If you wanna switch, switch jobs, you might be wondering, right? So should my stuff from university count? Should my stuff from high school count? It's, it's fine to include it until you don't have to anymore. Again, pivot this experience to best reflect the skills and impact required to land your desired position and then work um, to gain new relevant experience. So uh, another FAQ, right? Grades or experiences is, you know, if, if you're in school, this is going to vary from company to company, but on average, uh, I, I view it as sort of this, this sliding scale. So high grades plus the extracurriculars and experience, that's awesome. Low grades and the extracurriculars and experience and projects, that's still pretty good, right? I, I'm still seeing that you are able to deliver impact. If you have high grades and no extracurriculars, okay, well, that's all right, because from your high grades, I can deduce that you have some experience or competence, but without projects, I cannot validate that for sure, right? And that's a problem. Well, and if you've got low grades and no extracurriculars or projects, that's not so great. So your grades are just one part of a complete picture that employers are going to look at. So consider structuring your time accordingly. <clears throat> so sort of a, a check yourself. What should I be looking for at the end of the day once I'm done creating my resume? Are my skills coming across in this bullet or this section? Which skills are coming across? Is my resume telling a story? Right? What story is my resume telling? Am I catering it for the job? Am I appropriately expressing myself through this resume? What impact have I delivered? Are my action words relevant and unique? Don't don't write like develop, develop, develop for, for each one, right? Keep keep it uh, keep it interesting. And lastly, is my resume concise, easy to read, and easy to understand? So next, I'd like to talk about, you know, what should you be looking for uh, in an interview and how you should be structuring your answers to certain questions. There are, in interviews, typically about four brands of questions you'll receive. You're going to receive behavioral questions. You're going to receive product and design questions. Sometimes you'll receive technical questions, and often you will receive uh, analytical questions. Back when I used to interview for PM jobs in uh, high school and university, This format was a lot less structured. Uh, You could be getting programming questions sometimes. I've even received riddles before, uh, which are fun, but they're not a great way to tell if someone is qualified. So... Nowadays, the the format is a little bit more structured uh, and predictable. So so you can definitely count on on seeing some of these categories. So in terms of uh, a behavioral question, right? So this is going to be, tell me about your experiences and your personality. Product and design is going to showcase your product sense, your decision-making. You're actually going to build something. Technical questions are going to be about how you can understand and communicate technical challenges. So not necessarily programming, but again, that ability to take a big problem down, break it down into smaller problems, and then uh, an analytical question. So can you leverage data to solve a problem? And then how do you talk through that? So for behavioral questions, there's a lot of guidance out there on these already. So I'm not going to spend too long talking about, about uh, how to answer these. But I what, I what I will say is you should always be ready for at least these five questions. You should always be ready for tell me about yourself. Tell me about a project you've worked on. Why are you leaving your job? What do you want in your next role? And why do you want to work here? I think it, most interviews I've had or I've, I've uh, conducted, I will ask some combination of these questions. And I'll, I'll get into this more later, but you, you have to practice these, right? Uh, these will show up in your first screen. And if you don't, display you know, a competent, coherent, structured answer to these, you might not make it to the next round even if you have the skills to answer the subsequent questions. So do practice it. Right now, a lot of interviews are being conducted virtually. Honestly, if you have your about me and bullet points on the side, that's fine, right? Uh, I, I usually can't tell as an interviewer, if, if it helps you talk through it, You know, go for it. Uh, obviously, ideally you wanna memorize and ideally you do wanna customize these answers based on the companies that you're working for. So let's talk about the product interview guide, right? This is the big, scary uh, question that you really want to study for. So when you have a product interview question, these are typically going to be things like, how would you build something for someone? How would you improve uh, your favorite product? What's your favorite product and why? Things like that. So for me, I break this down into four main sections. And it's, it's really important that when you answer these questions, you take pause and you stop and you think about the structure of your answer. Um, Clarifying questions, and and I'll get into this in just a second, are, are, are so important. I've had so many times in interviews where I've asked someone, you know, how would you improve Spotify? And they'll just jump right into the UI. But, you know, I might have been asking how might you improve Spotify for uh, developing nations? I might've been asking, how would you improve Spotify uh, from an accessibility perspective? I might've been asking, how would you improve Spotify from a churn perspective, right, a customer churn perspective? So you need to really slow down. This is like a, a trap question and then, and then take it slow and, and work through it. So the, the four sections or the four ways that, that I break down these problems, I start by scoping the problem, by asking those clarifying questions, identifying the potential customers, you know, doing that SWOT analysis, Phase two is knowing your customer. So build those personas, start understanding their demographics, their behaviors, their their needs and their wants, right? Really start to understand and become obsessed with this customer that you're designing for. Uh, Identify those cohorts and then develop the problem hypotheses. Part three is product ideation. So you're going to list out the potential ideas. You're going to select and justify an idea and you're going to go back So that customer that you developed, you're going to go back to the SWOT analysis that you did. So you're always linking back. You're always building on your solution. And then lastly, we want to think about go to market and how you measure success. Right? So based on what you're building, okay, well, how do we build it? Right? Uh, What do we target target first? Excuse me. What are the risks? Well, how do we bring this to a new audience and how are we going to measure success? So let's take a sample question. How would you improve Google Maps? I very much like practicing these. How would you improve X type questions? Because I feel like many product design questions are derivatives of these. So, so I think if, if you were only to practice one style of question, which you shouldn't, but if, if you were only to practice one, I'd be, how would you improve uh, whatever. So let's start by scoping the problem, right? So someone asked me, how do I improve Google Maps? I say, okay, well, hold on. Improve can mean a lot of different things, right? Are we talking about revenue? We talk about retention. Are we talking about the number of users, the number of reviews? Right. What do we What do we mean? So in this case, let's assume that the uh, the interviewer has said the number of users. That's we want to optimize for. Well, next we want to ask, right? We want to understand the scope of the problem, and that also means we need to understand more about the company solving the problem. Right? Do we have any deadlines or targets that we're trying to reach? Uh, sometimes they might say yes, right. Sometimes they might say that yeah, we have one month to improve it, or yeah, our target is. 30% increase in users. I know certain companies, I believe Google is one of them, they really like focusing on 10x growth, right? So their target might be like, yeah, how would you grow this product by 10x? So once you've you know, scoped the problem a little bit more, uh, talk about what you know about the problem. I right? talk about the existing product scope uh, of, in this case, Google Maps. So we know for Google Maps, you can search for destinations. We know that you can share custom maps via the My Maps feature. <clears throat> You know, that you can plot routes, you can add stops, you can review locations, and lastly, there's Google Street View. There's probably a few more verticals that we could add here, but you know, let's, let's stick with those five for now. So <clears throat> next, we want to you know, continue scoping the problem and we want to think about, okay, who are the current or targeted set of users for improvements? So we know that of the folks you know using, using Google products, we know that there are people visiting places, there are people who are planning trips, there are people planning to visit a business, and there are business owners. So at this point, you can ask your, your interviewer which user to focus on, or you can suggest which user to focus on by analyzing the potential opportunity here. So in this case, I've listed four users, which tie back to those, um, the, the product verticals that we identified. And in this case, I would, I would suggest that we focus on people who are planning trips. And then I would try to justify this. So I would say, like, look, right now, Google Maps, we've got a pretty dominant market share for destinations and routes. We are currently underserving the trip planning part of the demographic, right? So I would consider looking at things like the total addressable market. I might look at the available competition in this vertical, the cost to entry, the the, the barrier to entry, th- things like that. <clears throat> so now that we, you know, are uh, aligned on the area we want to focus on and the customer. Let's try to think about what does the existing space looks like, look like, excuse me. So this is a really simple sort of SWOT chart that you can do. And in my case, I've categorized the competitors into three main areas. I've categorized them into maps. I've categorized them into social and into booking, right? So I think if you're planning trips, these are the three areas you want to think about. So for something like Bing Maps, I think that, you know, they've got a things to do uh, section, which is awesome. They also integrate with TripAdvisors, so it's easy for them to pull in content. They don't have to generate content on their platform. Weaknesses, weaknesses and opportunities, there's right now a low number of users, and there's not much uh, in terms of integration, right? So I might not have a, a one-click book my whole trip feature. For the social apps, they have a massive user count. Uh, social aspect, obviously, uh, through images and influencers. And they've got many reviews and ratings. They've got a thriving ecosystem, but they've got, again, very little in the way of booking integration and they don't do itineraries, right? So I cannot go on Instagram and get a, or at least not not easily get an itinerary for a new area that I want to go to and then you know book it. So that could be an opportunity there. For booking, uh, You know, Airbnb is pretty ubiquitous. TripAdvisor has a great overseas presence, but again, not much in the way of itineraries and not much of a social aspect. So we started by right identifying the verticals for Google Maps. We started identifying the users. We've decided to focus on a user. And for this given user, we're now looking at some of the competitors and opportunities in the space, right? So we're building out our landscape for designing a solution. So next, we want to know our customer, right? We can't build something if we don't know who we're building for. So a strategy which I really like is I like to generate a persona for my main customer. And then, of course, we're going to bring this back and justify it and summarize consistently. So I would propose we create a persona named Hannah. Hannah is 27 to 35 years old. Uh, Currently, Hannah is based in North America and Europe. And Hannah has certain behaviors. Right now, she uses Google Maps on her phone. She goes on trips with friends. She probably uses Instagram and TripAdvisor to figure out where to go, and she's probably booking places to stay via BB. Hannah has certain needs and wants. These needs and wants are going to help us define our solution. So Hannah wants to know the best places to go, see, right, eat, do. She wants to share those things that she's doing with friends and vice versa. She probably needs consensus from friends, right, before booking, and she probably wants to be able to book things easily based on wants and consensus, (coughs) Now, here we've identified our persona as someone who's, you know, in this particular demographic. And in an interview, you would probably want to justify that persona, right? You might say that, for instance, someone like Hannah is already in our prime market, so it'll be really easy to upsell them. We could have picked a different persona and we could have justified that to the interviewer as well, right? We could have picked someone who's a little bit older and said, okay, these people are not using Google Maps as much as we want them to. So maybe it's a great opportunity for us to pitch to that vertical, right? So, so there's a lot of different options that you can go here. Just make sure that you're always justifying and summarizing your choices. So now that we know our customer, we've got their needs and wants, we just have to come up with ideas. And this is where it gets fun, right? This is where everything comes together. And I, in, in my opinion, it becomes a lot easier to solve this problem because you've already identified the space, you've identified the verticals, and you know who you're developing for. And you've got deep empathy for that person or those persons already. So in 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 this case, I came up with five ideas. I recommend usually coming up with uh, like, maybe seven to 10, and then writing down your top five. And those last few ideas, they're fun, right? Those are the ones where they may seem a little crazy, they may seem a little impractical, but that's the like, wow, you know, what if what if we could do that, right? What if we really thought outside of the box? And, and that's where I find um, that style of thinking really resonates with interviewers, right? Because you are bringing fresh perspectives to the market. So <clears throat> to address some of Hannah's needs, we could build a system or a community around um, packaging places to go. So, so maybe having a community where collections of itineraries are created shared and updated across Google Maps, right? So maybe it'd be almost like an Instagram or a TripAdvisor, but it's, it's just for itineraries. This is really appealing, right? This could be something like, I want to go to Morocco. I've never been there before. I don't know what to do. I don't have time to research, but hey, this itinerary is top voted in the community. Why don't I click by on that? Second idea could be a place suggestion bot. So maybe based on the data that you've collected or that Google has collected from previous trips, maybe we could suggest a new trip for you. A third idea might be a concierge, right? So going old school here, maybe it could be a person whom you hire or a service to plan trips for you. The fourth idea could be a a trip assembler. A trip assembler would be something where you could uh, set the criteria and this robot would produce for you the perfect itinerary. A fifth idea might be like a Google Places blog. So it could be like a a, a blog hosted by Google or a news site hosted by Google or even a YouTube channel where you are uh, showcasing the top itineraries for, you know, that period of time. Some ideas that I could also list here that I haven't, right? Uh, We identified that consensus was one of the issues for Hannah, right? So maybe we could build a consensus algorithm where folks vote on aspects of the trip, and then it spits out something perfect, right? So, so there's again a lot of different directions that you can go. Just make sure to always tie it back to those needs, and 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 you know think out, think outside of the box. Um, and you'll only get there by by practicing a lot. So now that we've got five ideas, the next thing that we need to do as a product manager is you know identify what to build and why this is where something like a decision matrix can come in handy. So the way a decision matrix works is on the left, you have your choices, and then for columns, you have the measures against which you are uh, trying to optimize that choice. So here I'm looking at whether a product is gonna be useful, if it's gonna be innovative, if it's gonna be inexpensive to build, and if it's gonna be quick to bring to the market, right? i have identified these as four needs. Earlier on, we asked if there were any constraints for the product, right? In this case, the recruiter told us no. But if they hadn't told us no, excuse me, we could put those here. You could also add. Um, you can. You can also add uh, weights. So, so the way that this chart is currently set up is I'm weighing each column uh, individually, right? So each one is worth. It's just a one-time ratio, and I sum them up. We could, for instance, decide that inexpensive to build is super important to us, right? So we might multiply that score by three. You know, there's 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 different ways that we could approach it. But for this case, we're going to keep it simple. We're just trying to gauge, is the product useful, innovative, expensive, inexpensive to build, excuse me, and uh, easy to bring to the market?
0: This episode is brought to you by Amplitude, the pioneer in digital optimization software that helps product leaders innovate faster and smarter by answering the strategic question, How do our digital products drive our business 1400 plus customers like atlassian instacart and under armor rely on amplitude's best-in-class product analytics solution to unlock insights build winning products faster and turn products into revenue get started at amplitude.com so for
1: product one we go across and we see product one has a score of 10. that's pretty good um we go across on product two and okay well product two so middle of the road useful pretty innovative it is not inexpensive to build you know by our estimation we think it's going to be it's going to take a long time and time to market uh, you know could be good so by going through and evaluating your ideas against these criteria you're demonstrating that you can think through a problem through all these different angles and this is something you're going to be doing a lot on the job the sort of how do you improve your product that is your job. Uh, I know for me personally, when I first started at Microsoft, my manager's manager came in and said, hey, we need to improve the availability, the uptime of Azure. Go, Go do it, right? So this style of thinking is applicable not only to your interview, but really it's effective as you create products in the wild as well. So Per this decision matrix, we've aligned that the first product, the sort of places to go slash itineraries community is what we want to build to improve Google Maps. So the last part of this is, okay, how do we bring this to market? And then what metrics do we look at to evaluate success? Sometimes you will come up with these yourself. Like you'll just go through and you'll be like, okay, now let's look at metrics. Sometimes you'll propose your solution and the recruiter will be like, okay, how would you evaluate success? In this case, for our new feature, we can look at the number of users, We could look at the number of collections, ratings, and shares, right? So kind of getting like an NPM score. We could look at the demographics of our distribution, right? Are we finding that this is only being used in California and not New York, right? So we might be trying to develop a global solution. And of course, the upsell aspect, right? So we could start measuring the revenue growth associated with ratings and traffic to the the stores and areas that that we're advertising. In terms of our go-to-market, right? Who do we target first? How do we target them? Well, you know, Google's a pretty big platform already. We've got Google Flights, we've got custom apps. Maybe we could even show these collections as part of restaurants, right? So you'll be browsing for restaurant and it'll say, this restaurant is part of this collection. That could be a great way to bring attention to the feature. We could add uh, a new tab to the Google homepage, right? So you've got search, images, news, maybe we've got collections. And we could add incentives for segments, right? So we could try to reward or compensate power users. We could try and seek out influencers and give them a proposal. We could be like, yeah, you'll get a 25% discount on the places that you include in your first 10 collections. Maybe we could do the same thing for first-time users. So what we managed to do... Oh, and and, um, I'll I'll go to the next slide. So uh, next, you want to be looking at what are some of the risks and potential improvements, right? So this is important to do the life cycle style of thinking. So we started with product verticals, we identified a user, we looked at the competition, we looked at the, the the user's needs, we built some products, have a go-to market. Okay, now that we're in the go-to market, what are the risks, right? So the risks for us, obviously, are adoption, right? What if nobody picks this product up? Uh, there's a potential risk for quality and staleness, right? Maybe once you've created 10 itineraries for an area, that's it. Maybe that Maybe there's nothing else which can be created post that. And there's a potential for safety and abuse, right? If we're directing swaths of users across these, um, you know, new places to go and restaurants, there's a potential that they may encounter risk on their journey. And that should be something of which uh, something we should be aware of. Uh, so what, what are some of the potential improvements which we could propose to identify, excuse me, to improve these risks? So potentially we want, I mean, we definitely want safety and moderation teams, right? We want to be making sure that whatever content is being uh, surfaced in these collections is appropriate for our users we may want to create a feature of things to do, right? So maybe this isn't something where we, as Google, leave the collections community to just blossom on its own, right? Maybe we highlight five or 10 of them every week and send them out in a, in a newsletter or show them on the Google homepage, right? Something like that. And then curation and customization could be another really important aspect, right? So if we find we fail at maybe creating a community, maybe we can pivot and focus on just, curating and customizing individual trips for the people who are using our app, right? So focusing maybe a little less on the community and a little more on the individual user. So just kind of going back a few slides and recapping, right? So we started by scoping the problem. We identified the main features on Google Maps. We looked at the users and narrowed it down to a specific user user category that we want to address. We looked at the market, for these users currently in this space, and we identified the strengths and opportunities and threats. We built a profile for our main user and identified their behaviors, their needs, and their wants. We built a, or we, we came up with a number of products to address their needs and their wants, and then we rated these against the criteria. We developed a go-to-market strategy and success criteria, and we identified risks and then improvements to those risks. So, From a really, really simple, how would you improve Google Maps, you've now created an entire justifiable product with users and success metrics and risk model and ways to mitigate that risk model just from that simple question. So you might be able to See why sometimes I'm interviewing someone and they just jump, you know, right into the UI or right into like, oh, let's optimize the color scheme or the button where like I hurt inside because there is so much more that you can explore with this problem. And we only looked at one user type, right? You could take this problem dozens, hundreds of different ways by focusing on different metrics different users, different growth areas. But the key is breaking that big problem down into smaller problems and really demonstrating that structured thinking where you're always being proactive with the customer obsession. You're always being proactive with the metrics and being proactive in terms of identifying potential improvements. So this is a, a, a diagram, which one of my friends, Sana put together and I, and I love it. So this is, if, if you could just take a photo of something, it'd probably be this. So you start by asking the clarifying questions Narrowing down the problem space, you move to your assumptions and your requirements. You build your design, you measure success, and you improve. This is the product life cycle. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a, a head start on how to analyze product questions. Now let's look at some technical questions. So technical questions are going to be similar to product, right? They involve breaking a big problem down into smaller problems. There's a recurring theme here, and uh, and yeah, so you, so you want to be uh, asking clarifying questions. You want to be identifying the users, the system considerations, the functions and requirements of the system. You want to be thinking about the components involved, the assumptions you're making. You want to be familiar with drawing a system diagram. And then potentially you want to be fluent in identifying the algorithms and data structures and trade-offs of your proposed solution. That sounds scary, right? Algorithms sound scary, data structures sound scary. I mean, they, they, they can be at first, but I I promise this is something that you can pick up, you know, in a week, a weekend, if not, well, a week, if not a weekend, if you're spending a few hours on it, these are, you know, there's a lot of content out there already. So I would just start by looking up, you know, on YouTube data structures, and then I would start by looking up something called big O notation. Those two will get you really far. So let's go into a sample question. How might you design and implement Twitter? So your first clarifying question is like, well, okay, hold on. Well, Twitter is big, right? Twitter can do a lot of things. So I would start by, you know, listing the features and then asking the interviewer, okay, you know, which features would you like me to address? So in this case, we can imagine that the interviewer has told us that we want to address the sending of a tweet, the timeline, both your timeline and the home timeline, and then the ability to follow users. So, okay. well, you know, your naive approach might be like, okay, well, this is simple, right? All we need are two tables. We need a tweet table and a user table where the tweet table maps to the user. And then whenever we load a page, you just have a get function, which puts a filter on each of these tables and you populate your timeline. Well, that's probably not going to work, right? The tweet table would get huge. You have a massive computational spike every time you open a timeline, right? That naive solution is not going to work. So, okay, well, let's, let's go back to what we know about how to, how to solve problems, right? So let's think about, okay, what are the characteristics of the system <clears throat> that I should be designing for? Is the system more read heavy or is it more write heavy? Does every user need to receive a tweet at the same time, right, how might I make sure that reactions and retweets uh, don't show up before the tweet itself? How might we ensure that tweets sent from one region can be read globally, right? With that big, uh, you know, our our naive solution, that would be really difficult to implement something global, right? Uh, How would we replicate it and and do it in a a consistent way? Should the timeline be pushed, pulled, or both? Okay, so now, now this is interesting, right? So a push model is where Twitter is giving us the data, right, proactively. The pull model is gonna be, we're asking Twitter, we're like, hey, can you give me the data? And then Twitter's like, okay, let me get the data and then sends it out, right? It's a push model versus a pull model. Which one should we pick? And then how should we ensure consistency between databases? So these are some of the considerations that we might want to come up with. And then we can start thinking about, okay, what are the components required for this solution, right? So we need to have some kind of a load balancer, right? We need to make sure that the system can handle tweets coming in from different areas and direct it to different computers. We probably want to have, some sort of a follower lookup database so we can make sure that um, tweets are being paired uh, uh, appropriately. We probably want to pre-compute timelines, right? That's actually what what Twitter does. Um, Because tweets are inexpensive to store and create, right? They're they're short strings of characters. We could actually, as a system, elect to pre-compute a user's timeline and then push that to them proactively so that when they log in, it's right there for them. So that's what we're gonna end up building in this solution here. So this is the technical sample diagram for a uh, tweeting and following experience. Here we can see Alice is sending a tweet. It's been put to a load balancer. From the load balancer, it will be moved to a Redis cache where the timelines are being pre-computed, right? Uh, We are gonna replicate across several uh, caches to optimize for speed. And then eventually when Bob wants to log in, he will pull from the Redis cache and then get his timeline ready. Uh, Oh, I should have mentioned that we have here also a database of Alice's followers so that we know how to compute Bob's timeline. So what are some of the trade-offs for the solution? Well, it's Pre-computed, pre-computed. It's replicated for quick loading, like I described. Uh, we are spending resources up front to boost user load times, right? This is super important. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that we've all been to news articles where you like, you click them and videos are coming up and it's slow to load and the text is minimized off to one corner, right? We expect on the internet instant information. So if we don't get it instantly, we're probably going to click off that's bad if you're a social network. Uh, How can we do this? I mentioned, right, the tweets are short. They're relatively low cost from a data perspective to manipulate. Um, There's some some considerations though, right? How might we build this cache for people with many followers, right? How might we build this cache given different usage patterns, right? Do I want to pre-compute the timeline for someone who only logs in once a month? versus someone who's logging in every three days, right? So some, some additional follow-ups for us to consider there. Oops, uh, and this is the diagram for accessing. So for accessing, we know that you know I'm a browser, I'm gonna go, f- go do a get function, I have a load balancer on the get side, I'm gonna grab the fastest machine that has pre-computed those timelines, and then I've got my timeline ready to go. So this is, this is the, the, the sister systems diagram for the push model that we had in the previous slide. So again, some additional considerations, the load balancer needs to know which machine to query, right? How does the load balancer know how to get Bob's timeline? So maybe we've got a hash lookup up there. Um, what about a hybrid solution, right? Maybe for really new tweets with a lot of followers, maybe we do want that pull model to make sure that things are consistent. So again, diff- different aspects that we could look at. Like before, lots of extra topics that we could consider here. We could search for tweets, right? So how might we implement that? How might we implement text notifications, right? So if I'm pre-computing these timelines, where does my notification funnel exist? How about advertisements, right? If I'm pre-computing timelines, where is room for sponsored tweets or advertisements, right? So some, some interesting areas that you can follow up on. So similar to the product question, right? We started with um the the nebulous you know how would you design Twitter we focused it to a set of features we thought about the system considerations we created the components and then we built the systems diagrams. This Twitter example is a very common question because it has this interesting aspect of pre-computing timelines and developing a push model. There are others, right? So there's like, how would you design WhatsApp? How would you design Facebook? If you go on YouTube and you, uh, you search for systems design questions, there's a lot of folks who can walk you through similar questions. So I, I recommend doing that before you have a technical interview. Lastly, let's move to your, or let's discuss the analytical interview guide. So the framework is very similar, again, to that, that product design question. Um, here, there's a few extra things we want to be aware of. We want to be aware of the funnel for users and their timelines throughout the product. We want to be able to generate and test hypotheses. And then lastly, we want to propose a solution. So let's walk through a sample and I I hope this will all become clear. So this is something I've personally received many times, which is our user signups have decreased by 50%. You know, everything's on fire. What do you do? Okay. All right. Well, again, we're going to take a step back, right? We're going to say, okay, well, how does the user signup flow work? What are the steps that a customer needs to go through when they're signing up? How are we measuring signups, right? Um, Are we measuring it every day, every month? Could we be Victims of seasonality, where we're just measuring it in really weird hours, and over what periods have the signups dropped off? Right? Is it a, a spike? Is it gradual? Is it you know like a trough? These are important for our analysis. We want to ask these these big questions to understand the space a little bit more. Next, what what I like to do is I like to create uh, the funnel of customer input. So in this case, we're talking about user signup but this could this, this sort of funnel is, is very applicable for other parts of an app as well. So for instance, if the question was, our user retention has dropped by 50%, right? I could create a funnel for user retention. If it was uh, our user adoption, you know, I could, I could do the same thing. So, so this sort of timeline of acquisition is really important because you could potentially solve problems or identify problems at any part in the funnel. So it's important to understand the holistic picture before you dive in. In this case, our funnel starts by a customer navigating to the website or navigating to the app, performing some data entry on the app where they're signing up, clicking the submit button, receiving an email from our system, and then clicking verify on the email. Once the user has clicked verify, they will have been considered as signed up. And we now know that this has dropped by 50% for some reason. So now this is where I generate hypotheses. And typically, you'll be working with an interviewer who's either actually like worked on this problem personally, or is serving as sort of the SQL database for your assumptions. So I start with really big, broad hypotheses, right? So, okay. Are there disparities across demographics, location apps? Like did our app break? Did, (laughs) Did a certain country just stop signing up did the was there an outage right like uh, start with the big things um, then once we've cleared those out you know assuming the problem doesn't exist at the top layer now we can start making hypotheses per funnel component so let's think about intake right have our ads stopped running did, did we forget to pay the bill what about the website are the forms working are we getting caught in a firewall maybe Data entry, right? Are the results making it into our database? Did something drop, right? Um, so, so you can start generating hypotheses for each state of the funnel, and you'll be doing this together with your interviewer, right? So um, I'm, honestly, I honestly, I have so much fun with these questions. They're, they're, they're really, I, I, I love digging through problems, but that's, that's I guess, on, on my side, I, I like being the, the data superpower PM. So, you know, lastly, once you've identified the problem, now you have to come up with a solution. Just like before. So let's say that the problem lies with the confirmation emails not being sent. How would you propose a solution? A lot of different areas we could look at, right? So we could look at anomaly detection for funnel stages, right? How why did why did we find out about this so late? We should have found out the moment that it went down and, and had a fix up right away. Maybe we could build fail safes and redundancies for our email pipelines, right? So maybe we'll have um, additional systems. So that when one goes down, some other ones are still sending emails out. Maybe we could evaluate the cost benefit trade-off of that. What about delayed conference confirmation, right? What if we let people have access to our app right away and then confirm later? So that, that would mitigate the, uh, it, it would take away the gate, right? They could use our app and then confirm later. So different aspects to think about. And again, per the product design question, for each of these, you can break it down. into so like, okay, well, who are the users? Which aspect are we working on? How do we evaluate the solutions with the decision matrix, right? So the, the same sort of structured thinking where you're taking a big problem and breaking it down to smaller problems, this will persist through every aspect of your interview. So let's talk about some, some general interview tips now that we've gone over the big four you got to practice, right? It's, it's like, if, if you went to write final exam and you'd only done, you know, one question sheet, you're probably in for a bad time. So have those answers ready for the typical questions, practice whiteboarding, or at least, you know, practice writing down solutions. So I've got, I've got here, you know, sometimes when I, when I'm practicing, I've got a whole bunch of notebooks here and I just write down, I just write down, you know, how would you improve insert product here and just walk through it. So highly recommend that. Um, if you can practice out loud, you know, interview with a friend, they will be able to push you. And it's, it's a lot easier when you're working with someone to make sure your solutions don't spiral out of control. That, that can, that can happen a lot when you're on paper, because there's so many different options uh, that you can pursue. Next thing you want to do is you want to study the company itself, like the Prior to every interview, ideally, you want to be an expert on that company. When they ask you if you have any questions, that is your opportunity to really showcase your knowledge and your passion for that company, and it's going to be advantageous. So do that strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, analysis. Have those questions ready. At the end of every interview, they're going to be like, do you have any questions? Don't, don't waste that opportunity. <clears throat> you want to think out loud and summarize and recap wherever possible. Thinking out loud is, is super key because you know, as a product manager, your main job is to be thinking proactively. So we need to hear you, right? If you just go to the whiteboard or you go to your notebook and, and you're not talking, I don't know if you're solving the problem, right? I have no idea what you're doing. I need someone. I need I need you to demonstrate your thought process. <clears throat> Consider using star and par strategies when you're vocalizing your questions, have copies of your resume and your recommendation letters handy. You know, sometimes people, who uh, walk into interview aren't the same people who screened your resume. So have them handy and, uh, you know, engage. Don't be afraid to say, you know, have a moment to think about this. Take a sip of water, check in with the interviewer. Do you think I'm on the right track with the solution? Don't be afraid to ask for a hint or a check-in. In in real life, when you are a product manager, you are going to hit roadblocks all the time. And the last thing that you want to do is suffer in isolation. Take your best shot, do what you can. But if you get stuck, don't be afraid to ask for a hint. If anything, that is demonstrating for me a growth mindset, which I personally find extremely valuable. So check yourself on the interviews. Have I practiced the questions out loud? I, I, again, I can't, I can't understate this. Um, I, many people lose 30% of their IQ when confronted with a whiteboard. You, you need to practice. Have I performed a SWOT analysis for the company, right? Am I ready for this interview? Have I thought about my story? When I'm uh, answering uh, you know, the about me questions, have I, have I thought about what makes me unique? Have I thought about my passions? Have I thought about what I'm really bringing to the company? So these are the three things I I'd, I'd want you to check. So for the last part, I want to quickly discuss networking. Uh, networking is super important and it is easier than it has been in the past. Uh, many of us have received our current positions by virtue of our network, which we were able to develop through our previous jobs or through college, university hackathons, things like that. So I, I really can't understate the value of networking and there are extremely important to grow as a person, right? You want to be surrounded by people or have access to people who can inspire you and who can push you further. Uh, certain companies, they receive million, millions of applications a year, right? If, if you want to get in, you, you need a network. So what are some of the ways that you can build your network? You can, like I mentioned, hackathons, go to conferences, career fairs, uh, engineering conferences. There's a few specific ones for Canada I've linked there take a look at facebook groups linkedin groups slacks discords uh, professional associations uh, you know meant just message people on linkedin that's that's why i'm talking here i think a lot of folks are really excited to share their knowledge and to share their learning so so don't be afraid to reach out take a look at meetup uh, take a look at eventbrite and of course your friends so what about your elevator pitch right uh, when you do network with people what should you say uh, i've had so many people crash and burn to me or crash and burn in front of me because they hadn't practiced their elevator pitch, right? Just like with the interview questions, please practice this. It's going to pay off. So start by introducing yourself, summarize your history, summarize what you do, explain what you want, and finish with a call to action. This is a sample framework. You can modify it, but it's a great place to start because it hits all of the bases and it's easy to practice. Here, I've got a sample technical pitch. For, uh, for someone who, who's, who's doing a technical elevator pitch. We got, hi there, my name is Ashwarya. It's nice to meet you. I have a background in software engineering from the Stevens Institute of Technology, which is where I discovered my passion for user-centered design. I spent the last several years honing that passion by working in product-facing roles across a number of different industries in the Bay Area. Right now I'm working as a product designer for L'Oreal. I'm responsible for the user intake funnel of their ad campaigns. I'd love to learn more about opportunities for improving advertising and customer retention strategies. Could we chat over coffee? That took 22 seconds and it hit all the bases. But you might be asking, right? Well, I'm not technical right now. How do I, how do I structure my my elevator pitch? You can have a non-technical elevator pitch. It's just about that pivot, right? We were talking about earlier. Here's a great example. Hi there, my name is Sharuk. It's really nice to meet you. I've actually been a teacher for the last several years, and I'm really interested in leveraging my talents in the software space. As a teacher, I've developed the skills to context switch quickly balance priorities, plan short-term and long-term strategies, handle unexpected crises, and tactfully resolve difficult situations. Background in philosophy also lends me the expertise to solve problems in a novel way. Do you have any problem-solving roles in your company that you're looking to fill? So here we have an example of someone who's a teacher pivoting their skill set in a product sense, right? So, so you, you, you can absolutely do something like this as well. Some tips, write it down, but practice it out loud. Practice it in front of a mirror. Take your time, but do time yourself, right? Uh, You want to make it conversational, but you don't want to be a robot. Create multiple flavors. You know, if you're uh, pitching to an engineer, your your elevator pitch is going to be a little bit different than if you're pitching to a CEO. Tell that story, showcase your passions. So for the networking, check yourself. Ask yourself, right, what steps am I taking to expand my network? What kinds of people am I trying to target in my network? Have I created and practiced a compelling elevator pitch, right? So some some areas to think about. Few last thoughts before I close out here. Like I said, you don't need a tech degree to land a tech job. You do, however, need relevant and applicable experience, and you can gain that experience from jobs that are not in tech. That teacher example, that that elevator pitch was, was a great example of someone who doesn't have a technical background, but has developed technical skills through their job, right? Per the product interview guide that we just did, you don't need an engineering degree to be able to do any of that, both in an interview or in your job. That sort of problem solving and structured thinking is an acquired skill. And to acquire that skill, you just have to practice and try and find some of those opportunities wherever you can. Think about how you're leveraging your passions to build or advertise skills. People are crazy about NFTs right now. If you're not crazy about NFTs, you don't have to force it, right? Think about what you want to work on. Of course, if you are crazy about NFTs, then you know, think about developing products in that space, right? Think about the stories that make you stand out and use those stories to build your career and use them in an interview, right? Use them in your pitch, draw from your experience when you're answering these problems. That human element is super key and it really stands out and shines in an interview. And lastly, it, it, gets, it gets easier. There is this notion that a career trajectory a linear path and if if you go to a technical school or if you're envy scrolling through linkedin it really looks this way it looks like you start in qa become a dev you become a senior dev you switch to product right Um, it it looks linear i'm here to tell you for for most people it's not and it it shouldn't be the paths that you take the spirals the ping pongs are critical to developing your skill set to developing your personality, and to developing your story. You don't want a linear path because you're gonna miss all the learnings that you could have had along the way. It is normal to get rejected. People like me, even though I'm giving this talk, still get rejected. It's not uncommon for your rejections to outnumber interviews. On the road to get my current job, I've been rejected from dozens of places, as have many of my peers. There are always more, and it will always get better. It is normal to flub interviews, especially for your first few or early on in your cycle. You're warming up. You're human. It's bound to happen. It's normal to feel overwhelmed. Being uncomfortable is how you learn. You don't need to be an expert at everything. You will build off of your strengths. When you are uncomfortable, that's how you grow. One of the signals for me to change has always been when I'm feeling too comfortable, right? Find those opportunities to make you uncomfortable. Learn from them. They're going to help you grow. And it's normal to feel envious. Look, you can always make more. Some people are always going to be one step ahead. I, I like to think about it this way. I may be a halfway decent product manager, but I am a terrible doctor. I'm probably not a great electrician, and I'm a mediocre painter at best. You are creating your own goalposts and your own racetrack. And it's so easy to be super hard on yourself. And I want to encourage you not to do that. Focus on being the best you that that you can be. And with that, that's all my time. Here are some links to helpful resources. I hope that this talk was helpful. Please do reach out to me. Uh, I will include my email address and my website at the end, or excuse me, in, in the deck along with this. You can reach out to me at alivira, that's A-L-I-V Victor, I-R-A dot com, or find me on LinkedIn. I am more than happy to help answer any questions that you have about product. And if I have cycles, I'd love to review some of your resumes as well. Thank you for the time and best of luck in your search.
0: Thanks for listening to the Product Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Taking the time to write just a few sentences about what you love most about the show will help us improve it and reach even more product people around the world. And when you're done, why not reward yourself with some free product management content and resources over at ProductSchool.com. Until next time, stay product-led.